First, let me say Happy Father's Day to all our fathers in the room, and there's perhaps no more effective influence you'll have on your children and your grandchildren than to be in church and have them in church. I tell people that I had uh, a drug problem early in life. I was drugged to church every Sunday. And we laugh at that, but the reality is that I don't know that your parents could have a greater influence than to expose you to the light. If you come here, you get exposed to the light. You get exposed to the truth. It has an influence. It has a power. Last week we talked about Peter's first sermon. I haven't made a big deal out of it, but I've been slowly preaching through the book of Acts. Last week, we talked about Peter's first sermon in which he reveals two things. He reveals the resurrection as the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he reveals that there is a king in waiting. There is a resurrection, but it's going somewhere. There's going to be something happens at the resurrection. There's going to be a king who's no longer in waiting. On that day, when he preached that sermon, there were 3,000 people baptized. After they find out, after they find out about the resurrection, after they find out about the king in waiting, guess what happened? 3,000 people stand up and say, what shall we do? That is a big question. What shall we do? But here's the question today. What happens after that? I mean, it's a big day. It's a big day. Peter preaches the first sermon. It's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. 3,000 people says, say, I'm in. I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. They're baptized. Wow, the church begins. Then what? What happens after that? What happens after I believe? What happens after I confess my sins and repent of my sins and I'm baptized? What happens after that is the book of Acts. I don't know how much you've studied this book, but what happens after that is the book of Acts. If you want to know what the church is supposed to look like, you read the book of Acts. And see, I'm, I'm concerned that when I study the book of Acts, the modern American church doesn't look anything like this church in Acts. They don't look the same. What happens? I'm going to warn you ahead of time. What I'm about to read to you about what happens after that is countercultural. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. What I'm about to show you today is against the flow. It seems unnatural. It seems not practical. It seems unusual. It seems like you're going the wrong way. Everybody else is going this way, and this church is going the other way. So what is it that's happening? Acts 2:42. After that big event, this verse happens. Verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves. Let that sink in for a moment. 
all the believers. Now, at this point, that would be 3,120, roughly. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. They became a community of believers, not a commune that separates themselves, goes off on a high mountain, and never interacts with anybody again, but they became a community of believers but a community of believers that encouraged each other to be unlike the world. They encouraged each other to not go along with the world, to be different. The Holy Spirit came and Peter preached the Word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. The people believed and they cried out, what should we do? They confessed their sins, they repented of their sins, and they were baptized, and then what happened? They devoted themselves. Then what happened? Don't miss it. Then what happened? What happens after you encounter the truth of the Word and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, your ears, your heart? What happens after that? Okay, I was baptized. What happens after that? You see, a lot of people just, just focus on the first part and you don't understand what happens after that. They devoted themselves. Do you know what that means then? Do you know what that means now? It, that word devoted is a word of loyalty. They devoted themselves, they became loyal to the gospel. What they heard, what they experienced. They began living an intentional and purposeful life, devoting themselves, listen to me church, to a new way of life. They could no longer live the old way of life. Because they had changed directions. They devoted themselves to a new way of life. They didn't believe and confess their sin and repentance, get baptized, and then live an unchanged life. No, it's impossible. They devoted themselves to a new life, a new way of life, that was based on four foundational principles, at least four foundational principles found in that verse 42. Four of them. Did you catch them? They devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They devoted themselves to fellowship with each other. They devoted themselves to eating together, which included the Lord's Supper. And fourth, they devoted themselves to prayer. Four things. Four foundational principles to this new way of life. Devoted, devoting themselves to a, a new way of living life. These four things laid the foundation for the church. The church that we still belong to today, the body of Christ. There are more than four things, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to pretend like there are only four foundational truths. But there are four things that they focused on. So let's start with those four. Why? Here's where I'm going today. If you want what they got, you've got to do what they did. If you read the Bible and you say, I want what they got, then you got to do what they did. A lot of people want what they got, but you don't want to do what they did. Who doesn't want what they got? The Holy Spirit came. They, be, they changed the world. These people changed the world. Then you got to do what they did. They devoted themselves to a new way of life. It didn't come naturally. It's hard. 
It's hard. So let's break down these four things to start today that they devoted themselves to. The first one, it seems so simple, but I'm going to tell you it's not. The first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teachings. These new believers listened to the teachings of the apostles, those who had witnessed the life of Christ. And they listened and they learned because these people had not met Jesus personally. They had not heard him personally. So they listened to the people who had heard him, seen him. They listened. And they devoted themselves to the words that came out of the apostles' mouths. They devoted themselves to those teachings. So here's the question for us today. How can you do that? If that's how the early church began, if that's the foundation, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, can you do that? If you want what they got, you've got to do what they did. Can you do that? Do you have a copy of the New Testament? Can you read? You can devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. You can make it complicated if you want to, but you don't have to. Do you have a New Testament? Can you read the New Testament? Are you devoted to the apostles' teachings? Have you devoted yourself? Yes or no? You see, it's a clear answer. Yes or no? You want what they got? You've got to do what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. This is a new way of life. I'll ask you a question, church. Are you in a Bible study? Are you in a Bible study? No, I don't need that. I come Sunday and listen to you talk about it. That's not it. Have you devoted yourself to the apostles' teaching? That means you're in some type of a Bible study. Some people like to study alone. Some people like to study in groups. I will confess to you, I'm one of those that studies best alone. I'm one of those guys and I need to get behind a closed door. I don't need anybody around me. I, don't, I just want just me and the Word. But you know, I also know there are people that study better in groups. You need to figure out which one of those you are and you need to get to it. It doesn't matter which one you are. You need to be devoted, loyal to the apostles' teachings. It's a new way of life. This is what you're supposed to do after you believe. This is what you're supposed to do after you confess your sins. After you repent of your sins. After you're baptized. This is what you're supposed to do. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. You want what they got? You've got to do what they did. Number two. They devoted themselves to fellowship with each other. This is where it gets interesting. They devoted themselves to fellowship with each other. Well, what do you think that means? You think they moved away to start a community away from society that only included believers? Do you think that was it? No. They didn't move away from the world, but they did do something. They did separate themselves from the ways of the world. They did not move away from the world. No, that, they wouldn't be able to complete the mission. But they separated themselves from the ways of the world by intentionally surrounding themselves with like-minded believers. Like-minded believers. I see a lot of people that struggle with balance on this second foundation. 
How can we make disciples if we never associate with unbelievers? I hear this all the time. And it's a good question. I don't make light of the question. How can we go and make disciples, which is the calling, the mission of the gospel, if we never associate with unbelievers? It's a good question, and it requires a life of balance. The Apostle Paul says this, and by the way, are you devoted to this apostle's teaching? Because I'm about to read you one of the apostle's teachings. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Paul says to the church, don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. If you don't believe that, just send your middle schooler into the wrong crowd. You'll soon find out that verse is truth. It also applies to adults. Bad company corrupts good character. The context of that verse, now I just pulled out one verse, but you know what the context of that verse is? The bad company were people who refused to believe in the resurrection. They refused to acknowledge the resurrection of the dead. I love how Bob Russell, he was here, uh, what, about a year ago, and I love how he puts this particular issue he says if you put on gloves and you work in the mud the mud never gets glovey let that sink in for a moment if you put on clean white gloves and you go and work in the mud you know what never happens the mud never gets glovey and that's this point they did not separate themselves from the world but they separated themselves from the ways of the world. Here's the question. Should you have some unbelievers inside your circle of friends? I'm going to be practical, okay? Let's be practical for everybody in the room. Should you, should I have some unbelievers inside my circle of friends? Yes. But my devotion is to believers. But my devotion, my loyalty... Is to believers. Should I have unbelievers inside my circle? Yes. You know why? Because the mud never gets glovey. But I must carry out this mission. I told you before that I started, I told you when I started, this is unnatural. This whole idea of devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching, devoting yourself to, to Christians, like-minded Christians, it's unnatural. It's like going against the flow. Let's be honest and practical. Can you really live in today's society apart from unbelievers? No. You can't do it, and I can't either. That's not even the question for us today. The question is how much of your devotion is to believers inside the church? Ask yourself that question. How much of your life is devoted to the believers inside this church? Well, I see them on Sundays. And if I don't like that person, I go to the other side of that room. How much are you devoted to this group of people? I've had people tell me several times, after today you might not say it again, I've had per people come to me and say, you know, Terry, I liked it when the church was smaller. Maybe you're in the room, you're one of those people that said that. I was probably nice and walked away from you. You know, preacher, I liked it when the church was smaller. You know, the church is too big now, 
And I liked it when we were small, when we could just, everybody knew everybody. I can tell you, I bet you'd have hated that first Sunday on the day, that first service on the day of Pentecost. When 3,000 people came forward and were baptized, you'd say, well, there goes the church. It was all fun when there was 120 of us. Maybe you'll just hate heaven. Because I think there's going to be a whole bunch of believers there. You see, we offer small groups in this larger church. Are you devoted to the fellowship? You see, I, I get it. I, I get it. I get it that I don't know everybody. I don't. I don't know everybody here. I know quite a few people. But one thing you can do in a large church is you can get involved in one of these smaller groups. And if you're devoted to the apostles' teaching, guess what? You will also get devoted to one of these small groups. And you will find community inside those small groups. Are you devoted to fellowship? It is our plan. I'm going to tell you, we've got all kinds of groups going on. There's an outdoor group. You want to go frog gigging? Some of you are thinking, no. Well, there's some people in here who like to go frog gigging and shooting up stuff. And guess what? There's a group for that. You can go do that. There's a group of people. You find like-minded believers, you go connect to them, share life with them. It's our plan to open up something new in the next few months, home Bible study groups. Some of you need to be in a home Bible study group, something we do off campus. We offer Sunday school groups, groups, small groups of people that quite simply they're doing life together. All of them are devoted to fellowship. They understand that crossing the wilderness by yourself is probably not a very good idea. You might ought to have somebody with you. We offer youth groups for your kids. In fact, there's a group of kids, who just high schoolers, who just got back from CIY. And I'm going to tell you, it's life-changing. You know why? Because they didn't do it. They didn't just go. We didn't just send one kid. They did it as a group. And as a group, the power of God was manifest in them. Several of them had their lives changed. Are you devoted to this church? To these people? Let me tell you a phenomena. At least I call it a phenomena phenomena that's hard to say you, you know our attendance weekly shifts in the hundreds in the hundreds like we might have a sunday with 700 and we might have a sunday with 900 it's i keep looking at them and say where are all these people and then you got easter and easter has 1400 people and the next sunday there's 700 people and i'm thinking did they die Where are they? In fact, we went back and kind of drug up some numbers. If everyone who says they come to Nineveh Christian Church, where do you go to church? I go to Nineveh. If everybody who says they come to Nineveh Christian Church all showed up today, we couldn't handle it. We estimate there would be between 1,700 and 2,000 people. If everybody who says they've come to Nineveh all showed up at one time. Are you devoted to the fellowship? Let me ask you. I can't talk to them because they're not here today. Are you devoted to the fellowship? If you want what they got, you've got to do what they did. 
Number three, eating together. Somebody say amen. I haven't even got into this part yet. Eating together, which included the Lord's Supper. There's something about sharing a meal together. I don't know what it is. There's something about sharing a meal together that binds people into a community. What'd you do when you started dating that girlfriend or boyfriend? What'd you do? Don't say you took them bowling. What'd you do? You took them out to dinner. You went and you shared a meal together. That's what we do. There's a somewhat funny story, at least I find it funny, in the apostles' teachings that covers this point fairly well. In fact, I find it interesting that I can find, what I'm about to read to you, I can find all four of these fundamental church-starting truths in what I'm about to read to you. It's found in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we gathered with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. They're going to eat together, right? Local believers sharing the meal together. Paul was preaching to them. Since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Until midnight. Did y'all catch that? The upstairs room where we met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus was sitting on the windowsill, and Eutychus became very drowsy. Finally, Eutychus, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death below. I want to tell you, I never had trouble remembering his name because his name's Eutychus, and I always think Eutychus too if you'd have fell out of that window. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's just how I remember his name. You'd have cussed on your way down. So, so here we are. Paul's got them together. He's preaching, preaching, on and on and on and on. It's midnight. Eutychus falls out the window. Verse 9, as Paul spoke, uh, no, 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 verse 10. Paul went down. Eutychus laying there dead, I suppose. He went down, he bent over him, and he took him into his arms. Don't worry, he said, he's alive. Then they all went back upstairs, and what did they do? They shared in the Lord's Supper, and they ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn. <laughs> you think these services are long. Until dawn. They're falling out the window at midnight, and he's going till morning. Meanwhile, the young man was taken home unhurt, and everyone was greatly relieved. The apostles' teaching. Paul was giving it to them in full measure. Fellowship with each other. Local believers had gathered together because they wanted to know the Word. Eating together, which was the third foundation, and then sharing together the, the Lord's Supper. Interesting to me, they, after this boy had fallen out of the window, they go up and they take communion together. Four, number four, they devoted themselves to prayer. Paul prayed over the boy, and that boy prayed that he never had to go to one of Paul's services anymore. Some people ask me why we take the Lord's Supper every week. Believe it or not, I've had a lot of people ask me that question. I want what they got, so we do what they did. That's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, 
to fellowship with one another and eating together, which included the Lord's Supper. And that brings up point number four. They were devoted, what? To prayer. Some of their prayers were as a group. Most of their prayers were personal. They were doing group prayers even after Jesus had returned to the Father. I want to tell you, there's something to be said for group praying together. A group of people praying together. But there's something also to be said for private prayer. They were doing the group prayer after the ascension of Christ. Acts 1.14 They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus had already, already taught them about individual prayer, private prayer, secret place prayer. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus describes it. When you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself. Shut the door behind you. Pray to your Father in private. Then your Father who sees everything will reward you. They were devoted in prayer. Not just a little bit. Devoted is not just a little bit. This is what it means to live in fellowship with God. You see, they had fellowship with each other. But prayer is to go from fellowship with each other to fellowship with God. You see, if we all got together and let's say we had a, a meal, we shared a meal, and we go up to the fellowship hall and nobody in the whole room talks, it'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Because I don't know how to fellowship with you or you with me unless we talk to each other. When you pray, you're having fellowship with God. You talk to Him. You communicate. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. The Apostle Paul tells the church, always be joyful and never stop praying. If you want to get what they got, you've got to do what they did. So I'm going to ask you a question today. Are you devoted to those four things? The Apostles' teachings. Are you in a Bible study? Do you understand? Are you studying the New Testament? Number two, are you devoted to fellowship with each other? Devoted, loyal to the fellowship with each other. Number three, are you devoted to eating together, which includes the Lord's Supper? When we come together for a meal, when we today, we, today we just took the Lord's Supper together. Do you think that matters? I'm going to tell you what, yes, it matters. We shared the body and the blood of Christ today. And finally, are you devoted to prayer? It's one thing to focus on what these four things do to individuals. To devote their life to these four things. But it's another thing to see what happens when an entire community focuses on these four things. Not, not, just, not just a person does it, but a community of people begin to do it. Acts 2, 43. This is after they devoted themselves. After they devoted themselves to those four things. Next verse, the deep sense of awe came over them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. Does this describe your current spiritual life? A deep sense of awe. Would that describe your spiritual life right now? A deep sense of awe. 
There were miraculous things happening all around them to believers and to unbelievers. If you want what they got, you got to do what they did. Do you remember that I said this was countercultural? You've not seen anything yet. Wait till we get to the next verse, verse 44. You talking about countercultural? Verse 44, and all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything they had. And they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And right about now, we might all have the safety team scattered across the audience in case people start falling out of their chairs. They sold everything they had and they gave it to people who needed stuff. Whoa. I told you, this is countercultural. How big was that first church? That's the first thing that caught my mind. All the believers met together in one place. How big was that first church? They all met together in one place. Are you one of those who liked it better when the church was small? I'll ask you again. Maybe that has something to do with what they did when they met together. Maybe you liked it better when it was small because it has something to do with what they did when the big group met together. They shared everything they had with each other. Is that countercultural? They sold their property and they sold their possessions and they shared with those who were in need. Now some of you, I know what's going on in some of your mind right now, you're thinking, well, that's socialism. No, socialism is when the government does it. Christianity is when we do it. You do it because you want to, not because the government made you. Christianity is when you do it yourself and you rejoice in the process of giving away that which you can't keep in order to receive that which you cannot lose. I'm not proposing today that we all sell our houses and possessions. That means some of y'all who are thinking about leaving right now, you can stay. At least hear the next part. I am not proposing, nor do I believe this means, we are supposed to sell our houses and possessions and give it all away. No. I am proposing that we all give our tithe as a baseline so that the church is financially equipped and prepared to meet the needs of the needy people around us, believers and unbelievers. If every person in this church tithe, this church would never be short of meeting every need brought to this church. That's how God works. Secondly, each of us needs to stand ready to meet the needs of others, not just through the church offering, but individually as the Holy Spirit directs you. Individually. As a church, corporately, we have great power to influence this community if everyone tithes, which is God's calling for His church. But individually, we'll find situations where we won't need the body to respond. We are a part of the body and we respond ourselves in the moment. Does that early church concept seem crazy to you? I'm asking. Come on, let's just be real today. I, I hate games. Does this early church concept seem crazy to you? If you want what they got, you've got to be willing to do what they did. Let's be honest today. The accumulation of wealth idea is a lie. Why does this seem crazy? Because the average American is in the process of accumulating wealth. 
It's the goal of life, right? It's the American dream, right? To accumulate wealth. I'm going to tell you the truth today. The idea of the living a life that has the purpose of accumulating wealth is a lie. When it comes to making you secure, it's a lie. There is no amount of wealth that can make you secure. I don't know what kind of number you've got in your mind that if I had that, I'd be secure. It's a lie. It's a lie. There is no amount of wealth, there is no amount of accumulated wealth that can make you or me secure. There is no amount of money or possessions that can give me security. We are reading today about the things that you can devote your life to that will make you secure, and the accumulation of wealth is not on this list. It's not on there. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, again, the apostles' teachings. Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I, not money, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you or abandon you. I'm going to tell you, that's security. You devote yourself to that security. It never fails. What was God trying to teach the children of Israel in those 40 years of wilderness wanderings? Why did He only give them enough manna for one day at a time? Have you ever thought about it? Because I'm going to tell you, I do think about it. Why? Why? Was the, the angel factory that made heavenly bread not able to produce enough? Why did they only get enough for each day? Why? What was he trying to do? He was trying to teach them, and he's trying to teach us about true security. True security. True security is not financial at all. It's not financial. True security is living in absolute dependence and trust in God. Give me today my daily bread. Give me today my manna. Jesus tells of one such man seeking security. If you want what they got, if you want what the apostles got, you want that, that first church got, you've got to do what they did. Jesus is going to teach us a story today. Matthew 19. A story about security. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now he wants security, right? What what, what's eternal life? It's security. I want to live forever, Jesus. What do I got to do to live forever? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones? <laughs> That's interesting. If Jesus tells you to keep the commandments, do not ask him which one. Which ones? The man asked, and Jesus replied, You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else? What else must I do? And Jesus told him, If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven then. Then, there's an order. 
Don't reverse the order because you'll miss the point. Go sell all that you have, give your possessions, your riches to the poor, and then come follow me. Do you want security? A secure future? Are you sure? You see, this guy comes to Jesus and he wants security. He wants a sure future. I want eternal life. What's more secure than eternal life, right? Are you sure you want it? Because when he answers it, you might not like the answer. Will security come from good deeds? No. It's not in there, is it? Will security come by selling my possessions and giving them away? Nope, that's not it either. If you think that's it, you're not reading. Is security going to come from selling all my stuff? No. And why did Jesus tell him to do it? Don't miss it. I'm going to repeat verse 21. If you want to be perfect, Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then you'll be able to do something. And then you'll be, then you'll be free to do something that right now you can't do. Then you'll be able to be... Then, then that thing that's holding you back from doing what you really need to do won't be holding you back anymore. Then you can come follow me. You see, the security didn't come from selling your stuff. Some of you, your whole life, you've read that, and that's what you got. But it's not right. The security doesn't come by selling your stuff. The security came after you let go of the stuff that was keeping you from following Jesus. That's security. It's when you're willing to let go of the stuff that is keeping you from doing the main thing. Following Jesus. You can't serve both God and money. No one can serve two masters. God and materialism, you've got to pick one. If you want what they got, you got to do what they did. They devoted themselves. This is not about some biblical socialism. This is about removing the things from your life that you are more devoted to than Jesus. I want to say it again. This is not about some kind of biblical socialism. This is about removing anything and everything in your life that keeps you from following Him. That's what this is about. It's not easy, is it? It's countercultural, like swimming upstream. But Jesus told us, Jesus told us, He says, it's a narrow road that leads to a narrow gate. There's not very many people going to be on it because it's not easy. It's countercultural. You know what that means? There's a big wide road on the other side, and everybody's on that road. But there's a few people that are willing to turn loose of that which they cannot keep in order to take hold of that which they cannot lose. Do you think it was easy for those people? I think of those 3,000 people, and they start selling their houses and land and giving it to the poor. Do you think it was easy? Do you think they're any different than we are? What about that guy? I just read to you the story of Jesus is. The, the guy who comes, he wants eternal life. What about him? I, I didn't tell you the end, did I? Verse 21. Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give your money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away very sad. Why? Why? Because he had many possessions. It's too much. I can't do it. I can't let go of all that. 
I value you, Jesus, and I value my possessions, Jesus. And when I stack the value of you and the value of my possessions, I choose my possessions. You sold your soul. He offered you eternal life. And you made a terrible trade. You've got you to be willing to let go. It's not that that's anything wrong with possessions. What was he devoted to? Be honest. Why did he walk away? Very sad. Did he not hear about this treasure in heaven? Did he not hear about how to find this perfect treasure, eternal security? Devoted? Devoted to what? Those first century Christians were unloading all their stuff. You know why? Because they knew that too much stuff would interfere with following Jesus. They were devoted to following Jesus, and that became the purpose and intent of their life. The supreme devotion was following Jesus. Can I give you a word, fathers or grandfathers on Father's Day? You know, the most important legacy you will ever leave to your children or your grandchildren will be this, that they know that you are devoted to Christ. Don't try to fake it, because you'll just mess them up. But if they know, if, they, if your kids, if my children and my grandchildren know that the most, they, you know what, it's okay that they know I'm not perfect. It's okay that they know that I mess up and I do stupid stuff sometimes. It's okay. But if they know that they know that they know my daddy, my granddaddy loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is devoted unconditionally to God. That's the legacy. And if you refuse that to your children, you have put treasure ahead of them. If you want what they got, you've got to do what they did. Who can do it? Come on, preacher. Who can do this? You, you, you create a standard. There's nobody can live to this standard, right? Who can become this devoted while living inside this sin-filled, wretched body? Who can do it? That's a good question. And that question followed the scene in which the rich man walked away sad. The, the next verse, the rich man walks away sad because he's got a lot of stuff. Next verse, Matthew 19, 23. Jesus said to his disciples, I'll tell you the truth, it's very hard. You think Jesus doesn't know? He says, I'll tell you the truth, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished and they asked a brilliant question. Then who in the world can be saved? Who's going to make it, Jesus? This, this guy just got the offer of eternal life and he turns and walks away. Who's going to make it? Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Money is not evil. Unless you become devoted to it. I did a wedding in here yesterday. I married a couple here. Actually, two weekends in a row. I've had weddings in here on the weekend. And, and I pray a prayer. And I pray, I pray the prayer of blessing upon that couple. I, I, I pray that prayer of blessing on everybody in this room. I pray that God will make you wealthy. That God would give you financial security. Financial money. I pray 
There's nothing wrong with money. God made David rich. He made Solomon rich. The problem's not money. That's not the problem. I pray you got a lot of it. Until it becomes your treasure. And then I pray he takes it away from you. You say they were devoted. Not to treasure. They were willing to give up that stuff. So that they might have the true treasure. Money's not evil unless you become devoted to it. Do you know how you can tell if you're devoted? So, so you know how you can tell if you're... Because here's the problem. A lot of people are devoted to money. Devoted. I'm using that word. They're devoted to money and they don't know they're devoted to money. You know how you can tell if you're devoted to money? Give it away. Smart Alec. I love how John Hagee puts it. He says, the tithe is the only way to prove that the cancer of greed has not consumed your soul. Now take that test, church, because I think he nailed it. The tithe, being willing to take the first 10% of everything you have and bring it to the offering to church and let go of it. It proves, it's the, it's the best proof that the cancer of greed is not already eating your soul. Let go of it. Well, I'm not attached to money. Okay, let go of it. Who can do it? Who can do it? That's what Jesus' disciples, they're with him every day. Who can be saved? Who can do this? Who will be able to fully devote themselves to this treasure from heaven? Who can do it? Matthew 19, 26. Jesus answers their question. Jesus looked at them intently, and he says, humanly speaking, it is impossible which means none of us can do it. But then he says, but with God, everything is possible. You will never do this through your, home, your human strength or will. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. It's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Then how? With God. How? With God. Everything is possible. Do you remember the context of Acts chapter 2? What happened to those 3,000 people that it caused them to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship with one another, eating together, including the Lord's Supper, and devoted to prayer. What is the context? What happened before that devotion? What happened before they find out to get rid of everything to have the most valuable treasure? What happened before? I want to read what happened before. Acts 2.37 this is what created the response. This was the power of God that created their new heart. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you have received the forgiveness of your sins. Then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued to preach for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Then those who believed Peter were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. With God and with the Holy Spirit, it's possible. Humanly speaking, you will never devote yourself to anything but yourself. And that's the truth. But with God, everything is possible. 
If you want what they got, you've got to do what they did. Nothing in your life is going to change until your devotion changes. And your devotion is never going to change until God replaces your selfish heart of stone with a heart of flesh. A born-again heart of flesh. This is supernatural. And you could never do it on your own power. I can't do it on my own power. Who can do it, Jesus? Nobody. Humanly speaking, nobody but with God. This is supernatural. This event, this transformation, this heart of stone transformed to a heart of flesh. It's supernatural. He's the only one that can do it. Peter preached the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people, guess what? They got a new heart. They got a new heart. 3,000 people got a new devotion. They're devoted. The word means loyalty. That new heart was devoted to a whole new way of life. This is not new. This was and is the very plan of God to redeem the lost world. This is God's plan to give real security, treasure in heaven that will last forever. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied the supernatural event to the people of Israel 600 years before Jesus is born. What? That God has a plan to do heart surgery to the world. He's going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. To take that which is inside of me, which is selfish to the core, and devote my life to somebody besides me. In Ezekiel 36, 600 years before Jesus is born, here's the prophetic announcement. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and you will be careful to obey my regulations. I believe that supernatural event that I just read to you in Ezekiel will happen on a large scale to the Jewish people in the near future. Do you realize there's no mention, listen, there is no mention of a single uncircumcised Gentile in that first church of 3,000 people. Did you hear me? There is no mention of a single uncircumcised Gentile in that first church of 3,000 people. Have you ever thought about that? Acts chapter 2 was to the Jews in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. We don't see a Gentile come to Christ until Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. But right now, but right now, today, in this room, we live in the time of the Gentiles, the church age. And God is doing it for us Gentiles right now. Doing what? Heart transplant. He's changing hearts. He's doing something on the inside that you can't do for yourself. He's offering you a new heart, a devoted heart, which has no more idolatry. This new heart doesn't worship idols. This new heart is not devoted to stuff ahead of Christ. And by the way, I'm about to read to you the apostles' teaching. Will you devote yourself to what I'm about to read? Colossians 1.25, and then I'll close. God has given me the responsibility of serving His church by proclaiming His entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. 
but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know. He wanted them to know something. That the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance, a guarantee of sharing in His glory. You want wealth? You want riches? You want security? Here it is. This is it. God wants to use the preaching of the gospel to reveal the truth to you Gentiles today. The truth is this. God is making the riches and glory of Christ available to Gentiles right now. But one day that door will close. And what is this treasure? What is this secret from generations past? What is this security that is for all eternity? Christ lives in you. That's the new heart. That's the new heart. Do you think he can move inside of you and you're unchanged? You think he can move inside of you and you still worship idols? You're still in idolatry? You still have treasure beyond him? We're going to take that test and close today. We all like tests, right? Let's take a test and close. Four questions regarding the four topics from the first church of 3,000 people. Question number one on the final test. Are you devoted to the apostles' teachings? It's yes or no answer, by the way. Don't answer out loud, but answer, would you be honest with you? Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? Did you get a copy? If you didn't get a copy, see me after church, I'll give you a copy. Okay, number two. Are you devoted to fellowship with each other? Some people told me one time, he says, church would be all right if it wasn't for all those people. Are you devoted to those people? Question number three. Are you devoted to eating together, which includes the Lord's Supper? Simply, are you willing to share your life with these believers? You know when the church becomes strong is when that becomes us, when we share our lives together. Finally, number four. Are you devoted to prayer? I'll ask Chad to come out for the invitation. You see, the thing is, I've concluded that if you want what they got, you've got to do what they did. But the reality is, you want what they got, but you don't want to do what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing life together, to prayer. They devoted themselves, which means they're all in. So we're going to sing a song, an invitation today. And that invitation is to come and receive this heart. He takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. And if today you are already devoted, you are already in Christ, this is your song of celebration. Let's stand.